Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians is in the New Testament. It's towards the right-hand part of the Bible. Uh, there's also a table of contents in every Bible, and I don't want you to feel any shame in using that, or an application will get you there pretty quickly. Do you have any traditions? Any traditions in your family? When, when you ask this, you typically get something along the lines of like Christmas and holiday traditions, which those are great. Uh, I'm thinking more like not like maybe just unique to your family, you know? Uh, this last week we celebrated probably the greatest holiday that exists all year long, Cinco de Mayo. And uh, we had some Mexican food, some tacos. And uh, I, don't, I don't know if that's a tradition. Uh, it is in our family. We are going to eat uh, Mexican food on Cinco de Mayo. But to be really honest with you, we also had Mexican food on Friday. And uh, Monday, we, we, we just eat a lot of Tex-Mex, all right? That's, that's sort of a staple in our house. If you're new to Conway or Central Arkansas, there's a couple of traditions that we have here. Uh, a couple of traditions I'll, I'll tell you about. Uh, the first one is the yearly war between the trees and our face. Um, the, they launch a war, yellow pollen um, bullets fired at our face every year. Uh, it's, a, it's a bloody war. It's violent. It's celebrated. We commemorate that holiday by regular conversations of asking each other which sinus medications are working for you. Um, there's also, uh, we're right in the middle of this season, traditionally, every year about this time of year, we play a little game of guessing whether or not the, the weatherman is over-dramatizing dra um, the possibility of storms and whether or not they're actually going to hit us. Um, the, the hint is no, they're not. Um, then, of course, there's a tradition here in Conway in which we say out loud, in our vehicles that they are not from around here when you get stuck behind somebody who is stopping at all of the roundabouts, right? That's a tradition. So if you're new to this area, you need to do this. And then, of course, there is pineapple whip, all right? That's a tradition. That's a good tradition. Long live pineapple whip. My dog and I are creating new traditions. Um, it's a little game we play. Uh, the game goes like this. Every time I come out of my room, from the top of the stairs, that dog acts like it's never seen me before and lets the whole house know that uh, there's an intruder in. 12 o'clock at night, 6 in the morning, doesn't matter. That dog is um, pretending like it's the very first time he's ever seen a grown man. There's a lot of traditions. And in your house, uh, in your family, you can have traditions, you know, little different things that you do. Maybe you get a new team shirt on opening weekend kickoff or, or maybe there's a certain food that you eat on a certain holiday or the day before a holiday. Those kind of float around. All sorts of different traditions. Twice in the book of Second Thessalonians, he says this phrase, he says, hold on to the traditions. Hold on to the traditions. So when we started this series today, as we're starting this series in Second Thessalonians, which really is a letter, like a lot of times we call New Testament books letters uh, because they were, but this one actually feels like a letter, really short. And when we, uh, as we start this, we are going to be looking at these traditions. We, we call this series traditions because of the way he says it twice. But it, I became kind of like curious about that phrase. When you think about it, the, the letter of Second Thessalonians written by Paul to the church in Thessalonia, uh, the, it's only like a 10-year-old church 
Christianity isn't even that old, all right? So what could he possibly be talking about when he uses the word traditions? What would even be traditional at that point? When we think of traditions, we tend to think about like the way you do things, right? This is the way we've always done it. Or this is the way we've always sang this song, you know, until Bailey came and messed it up and put like a chorus in the middle of it or something like that, you know, messing up the traditions. By the way, I like the way he sings it. So there are these ideas that we think of with traditions. But when I looked up the word, in reality, what it meant was the passing on of beliefs from one generation to the next. Not so much the doing, but the believing. So what we're going to do as we look at Thessalonians, uh, we're going to ask ourselves, what are some of the traditions, the beliefs, the, the, the bedrock thoughts that we need to have as we are moving from one generation to the next, as we, the second family, a multi-generational church, worship and celebrate and make much of Jesus. Let's pray together. And then we'll, we'll begin in verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. God, thank you for this morning. And on a day like today where we celebrate um, mothers, I pray that um, if that day is a day of celebration, that there would be much encouragement, that there would be celebration and happiness, food and laughter, all that sort of stuff, hugs and pictures. God, I also want to pray for those in which this day for various reasons is um, maybe sad or hard or troubling. I pray that there is not discouragement in, in, in those moments and instead they find a place and a people who want to walk alongside of them, care for them, um, grieve with them and, and hope with them. God, that uh, we as a second family would be that kind of people, regardless of the day, regardless of the time, that we would be the sort of people that celebrate with those who laugh and cry with those who mourn. God, thank you for the day. In Jesus' name we pray together, amen. 2 Thessalonians chapter uh, 1, 3 through 12. The context, uh, what's happening in this setting is that the Thessalonian church was experiencing harsh treatments. They had claimed the name of Jesus. In, in other words, they had said, Jesus is Lord instead of uh, Caesar being Lord of the political uh, human authority in their lives. And so because of that, they were experiencing harsh treatments. They were, some of them were being killed. Some of their houses were being taken. Some of their lives were being destroyed. Their families were going through mistreatment. They had stood on this reality that Jesus Christ is Lord and they had faced opposition because of it. Now in our lives, in our times, in our country, um, it's sort of unthinkable that somebody would um, fight, like, like you need to declare that our civil leader is Lord, and if you don't, then you're going to face opposition. And so we don't really experience that. I think you could pro uh, probably find some outlaying extremist views that like a certain political leader is our savior or our hero. You could probably find that in our country, but largely speaking, we don't experience that. We do, however, we can, however, relate to them in that there is generally a philosophy or a mindset that in a manner of a way is like, I am Lord. I, I, my wants, my desires, my immediate gratification, what it is that, that I desire, this is the supreme standard by which I live my life. And if you 
if you were to stand on something different, if you were to say, you know, I'm not, you're certainly not. Instead, Jesus is the standard by which I live. He sets the course. He is the direction by which I pursue life. Then, then you may face some sort of feelings of opposition, hardships, struggles, those sort of things. And so in this way, we can relate to what the Thessalonian church was experiencing, which is a continuation of what was happening in the first letter to the Thessalonians. So we can experience these things. And what Paul does is he steps into that space to people that he loves, people that he cares about. And he says, you know what? Uh, there's a strategy here. I know that you're facing the opposition. I know that you're facing pain and trials, afflictions, persecutions, is what he calls it. But instead, what if it is more fruitful for you, beneficial for you to take your eyes off of the opposition and instead rest them on, refocus on something else? So that's essentially what Paul is going to do in this text. And that's what I hope to share with you. The first one, 2 Thess uh, Thessalonians 1 verse 3, we ought to thank God. Now pause right there for a second. This phrase, we ought to thank you, is unusual. It's the only time in the New Testament, it's the only time where Paul says those words. Typically he says, we thank God for you, or I thank the Lord for you. So this inclusion of the word ought is just a uh, carry on of what was happening in 1 Thessalonians. In 1 Thessalonians, he alludes to some people that were saying that he was being manipulative. They were saying, Paul is saying nice things to you to manipulate and to get money out of you and that sort of stuff. And so in sort of a response, assumably, in a response here, Paul is saying, no, this isn't like, I'm not flattering you. No, I'm not manipulating you. Instead, it is good, it is right that we thank God for what's happening in your life. This is good. This is decent. This is right. That we always um, thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. His point here is that there is progress being made. That he is thankful to God for the progress that they are making. And specifically, he's talking about their faith and their love. Now, it's important for us to constantly remind ourselves of what a biblical definition of faith and love is. It's words that we use in our current culture, in our, in our modern, uh, um, the culture in which we live in, but it's also words that come from Scripture, and those two meanings don't often coincide. For Christians, faith means trusting in someone who has always been consistent or, or, or faithful to you. We, we often think in our modern culture that faith means stepping out blindly. Like you're not really sure about what's going to happen. But in Christianity, faith is trusting in God who has always been consistent. And you can use that word in other ways. You can say that I have faith in a friend. I have faith in my spouse. I have faith that the Cowboys will never make it past the first round of the playoffs because they have been consistent in that way, right? There is consistency in that. So we just trust that that's the way that that's going to happen. Love is a word that we constantly use in regards to like, like a positive emotive response to somebody else. Like we see somebody, we love them. We feel happy about them. We call this butterflies. I remember speaking of Mother's Days and stuff like this. I remember when my mom was trying to explain um, uh, love and, and that sort of stuff. She said, it's like Mardi Gras in your stomach, all right? And so, um, which we're from the South, you know. And so um, Mardi Gras in your stomach. That's what we often refer to as love, all right? Love and, uh, but scripturally, love means, love means 
a willful choice, okay? Less about a motive. It's a willful choice that you will sacrifice for the good of somebody else, right? So that's scriptural. That's harder. Now, this one over here, Mardi Gras on your stomach, feeling nice about people, that sort of stuff, that's not bad. In fact, that's good. That is the way that God designed it. God designed you to get butterflies about some, you know, guy or girl or whatever like that. You're, I mean, you're supposed to feel those feelings, but it needs to progress. It needs to grow. It needs to be enriched to the point in which we make a, 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 a willful decision that I choose you and I will sacrifice whatever it takes on my end for your good and good defined by what Jesus defines good. So that's much harder. Um, like if you're a parent, you know, there's been times where like, like say if you have a preteen where you don't feel loving towards them, right? You don't feel butterflies about your kid, right? But you are committed to doing what is right for them. And same thing about like being married or something like that. Uh, and that's why we make that sort of commitment before God and, and our states and our friends and our families. He's saying in both of these regards, your trust in God and your commitment to other people is flourishing and it's increasing. You are progressing. You can look back on your life and realize that from that time to this time, I have become more trusting in God I have become more committed to the good of other people. This is good. This is progress, and it is helpful. It's like, you know, have you ever had some, like, a, like a project going on in your house, like you're redoing your kitchen or, or somebody's laying flooring or something like that, and there's delays. And so for several days, nothing is happening, and it becomes so frustrating, right? You just want to see like a little bit of progress, and the lack of progress makes you feel frustrated. Or if you think about like a runner on the positive side of this, you ever start running? You ever try to run and uh, like for healthy or whatever? And uh, you get out and you go around the block and you're like, I can't make it around the block. But you stick to it, you know? You stick to it and then eventually you're running like 13 miles. Easy peasy, right? You know, that sort of stuff. And I know some of you are thinking like, no, I've never run. I'm never going to run 13 miles. Why do you hate you? You know, that sort of thing. But, but it works. I, I, I promise you. You go as far as you can, and you keep trying to do that. You keep pushing through that sort of stuff because progress, you can look back and you're like, this is a good sign. We have made progress. So what Paul says in verse three is he says, instead of focusing on those who are against you for a second, look back. You've done well. You have become more loving. You have become more trusting in God. You have made a commitment, you know, um, maybe you, you think to yourself, like, back before, shortly after, you know, you got married, like, two years into your marriage, there were times where y'all were at opposition with one another. You were fighting or something like this, and you didn't do it, and you didn't even say it. But there was a part of you that wanted to run, bail, you know, um, uh, just bail on that relationship. Or it could be a friendship. It could be a job. It could be all sorts of things. But you have— discovered that over time through maturation and walking with Christ and development and friends and small groups and stuff like that, you, you didn't even think about it, but then y'all got into a squabble or whatever, or times got hard. And instead of, I'm, I need to run, you thought, I'm leaning in. I'm pushing into this thing because I'm more committed now than I ever was. Look, you don't, we don't regularly stop and look back at that, but I'm telling you right now in this moment, look back at that. You did good. That is progress. Even if it's just a little bit, 
That is progress, but it is hard. And maybe that's why in this moment, Paul jumps to this next theme. There's three we statements. There's we thank God, we boast, and we pray. And that pretty much builds out the outline. Uh, Verse four, therefore we ourselves boast uh, about you among God's churches. This boasting idea is something that we typically we don't really, we don't like tell people to boast at church. That's like a normally a thing we're like, yeah, you shouldn't boast. Um, but this is a positive example of boasting. Not in what I have accomplished, but what in you have accomplished. And what it means is that the church in Thessalonica had a, uh, a reputation. They were facing hardships, but they still did well. And to be really honest with you and to boast a little bit, I think that's how Second Baptist is. Even before, you know, before I was here. So I'm not boasting in me. I'm boasting in us. When I talk to Baptist leaders or other pastors and stuff like this, there is this um, curiosity, there's this mystery to it in which Second Baptist has been, gone through um, a couple seasons of really well-known hardships, right? Really well-known hardships. And yet in all of those hardships, the church not only stayed, it thrived. It not only survived it, it thrived in spite of it. And that is the sort of reputation that we ought to celebrate and treasure and live up to, right? So he says that about them. Uh, uh, and what he says particularly is about your, your perseverance and your endurance during your persecution and your afflictions. The persecution and afflictions here is something that we really need to think about and grasp. I understand this as a scale, right? Persecution or like the hardships we face because of our faith. If you put that on a scale or on some sort of spectrum, way over there, right, is um, people who claim the name of Jesus and then they're beheaded, right? Uh, or they lose their families or, or they're tortured or something like that. And that happens. It is happening around our globe. People are being persecuted for their faith. They are being martyred um, for their belief in Jesus. And, and rightfully so, we lift those people up in prayer and in respect and in honor. Um, but there is this whole spectrum. So if you think about it like way over there, that's persecution. And then way over here, I was trying to think about something mundane or something small. These are afflictions. Uh, they're smaller on scale, but we do face them. Think about it like if you're walking through your house and it's dark and you stub your pinky toe, all right? And then you want to say a word that you're not supposed to say, all right? You think it, but you don't say it because Jesus hears everything that you say, right? That would be on this side of the spectrum, right? All right? You're not being persecuted, but you're definitely feeling afflicted um, for your faith right there. You are struggling um, for the good of the crown, right? And so there's afflictions, there's persecutions, and we often as humans live somewhere in between, right? There are things that we face that we struggle because of our faith that don't allow us to do these things. And he says, in these things, in your persecutions and your afflictions, in between all of these things, you have endured. You have persevered. The way that I would sum that up is you have paid the price. You were willing to pay the price. When things got hard, you were willing to pay the price. When we were in Phoenix a month or so ago, we were there during spring training. Baseball, the MLB teams were there, and the Texas Rangers were there. So we were going to go watch uh, the Texas Rangers, and 
Uh, the boys wanted to get autographs, like on a baseball, they wanted to get autographs. So we went, we're not familiar with Phoenix, so we went driving all around trying to find some baseballs, to buy these baseballs and a, like a, a Sharpie so that they could sign this thing. And um, they don't have academy in Phoenix. And so we had to figure out where to buy these baseballs. We went to Target, they didn't have any. We went all over the place and made several stops. Finally found uh, this sporting goods store that had um, three baseballs for 11 bucks, all right? And, um, and, and we thought that was good. Three kids, three baseball. So that was good. So we got those and some Sharpies. And then we head to the park. And I liked that deal even more when we got to the park because they had baseballs for sale. One baseball for 10 bucks, all right? And I felt good about my decision because I was not willing to pay. I thought that that would be the case. I thought it would be much worse than that. But I thought that that would be the case because I'm not willing to pay $10 for one baseball that somebody's going to write on, all right? And so that's just really my feelings. It, and y'all know, if you know me, I can't stand baseball anyways. And so I'm not spending 10 bucks for a baseball. I was not willing to pay the price. So I did something different. In your faith, there's going to be all of these opportunities that you are going to either have to pay the price or you're going to have to say, I'm not willing to do that. Look, when you're being a parent, when you're a parent and you're raising kids in the faith, when you make this sort of commitment and then they start to get older, I mean, they're cute and they're, they're fun when they want to bail and go to the grandparents and stuff like that. That's, that's fun. That's awesome. But when they get older and they start wanting things like to skip church for uh, sporting events, that sort of thing. I heard a friend of mine said that there's a lot of Christian parents that are upset or concerned that Disney is going to take their children and... Uh, travel ball did that a long time ago. That's the reality of it. And so when we look at our children and we say, look, um, it's church. Uh, we got to make a commitment to church. And look, I'm not being a legalist on this. I'm not. If you want to, uh, you know, like a tournament takes you away or that sort of stuff, occasionally that's fine. But be careful how you're communicating that to your children. You know, every time that there's a baseball tournament here in town, there's these families that will skip the game during church and attend our church. That's just something to think about. I think that's pretty honorable. That's a way to do it. And again, I'm not saying that you have to go to church every single Sunday. I'm just asking you, why not? I have another friend who says that um, church should be the thing that you skip other things for, not the thing you skip for other things. Because all I'm telling you is this, and I was a student minister for 15 years, all right? For a long time, I dealt with other people's kids, right? And I am telling you this. You could see it happening. And then the parent would come to me and Jackie, and they're, the kid's like 18, and they have no faith. They have no, and they're like, what do I need to do about this? And it broke my heart, but I was always thinking in my mind, you started this back when they were nine. I can't do anything about this. There's nothing that I can do about this. You have always communicated to them that something was more valuable than church. And so uh, I hope that God works those things out. Uh, there are people who will live a certain lifestyle. They keep up a certain lifestyle, but they can't tithe or give generously to their church. They may have to suffer by, you know, having a smaller boat or something like that, but um, they're just not willing to pay that price. They look at their finances and they go, look, I'm not willing to pay that price. Uh, when it comes down to distancing yourself from a certain group of friends, there are so many times, especially in the young adult stage, in which you realize that this group of friends that you have, they get together and all they do is trash on other people. Or they get together and like the whole thing, if you guys didn't get together and get drunk, you would not get together. 
Like there's nothing else that you have any sort of commonality to. And so you think to yourself, I need to distance myself from these friends. But the distance is a price that you're not willing to pay. You're like, I have this faith and I'm not willing to pay this. Or you have like family members that you're going to have to sit down and lovingly say to your family member, look, you are living a lifestyle that does not honor God. You claim to know God, but you know, you're not living a lifestyle. But that uncomfortable is not a price that people are willing to pay. There's all of these situations. And look at me. Listen, I'm not trying to be a legalist here and I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. And if I'm stepping on your toes, it's an accident. But what I'm telling you is this, that at some point you have to answer the question whether or not you're willing to pay some minor price like distancing or loss in playtime or whether or not your kid's uh, grumpy for a couple days because you won't let them get on social media or whatever it is. You got to learn to pay that price or you just got to ask yourself if you actually believe this stuff. You just got to ask yourself. It's, it's, it's really on you. And hear me else. Hear, hear, hear me on this as well. I am not talking about forcing your convictions on other people. I'm not telling you to do that. I'm not even trying to force my convictions on you. I'm just asking you whether or not you're actually living what you claim are your convictions. That's something that you have to answer. So, what he says in verse 5 is, because you've made progress and because you were willing to pay the price, then both of these are evidence, evidence that God is actually working in you. And so if you feel opposition, if you feel struggle, if you feel things that are going against you, then Paul says, cheer up. Hey, you're, you're doing good. You made progress. You're getting better in your trust and your love. There were those occasions, not every occasion, there were times you you, you may be compromised or something like that, but you are, you are paying the price. These are good things. These are, focus on that instead of focusing on the opposition. And this thing can be reversed. If you look back on your life, let's say you've been a Christian for 50 years, and you are just as untrusting and just as unloving as the day that you came to Jesus, then that should be like a check engine light. You got to go figure that out, all right? Talk to a, a pastor or your small group leader or your friend or or your spouse, they'll tell you. Um, just talk to somebody like that and say, what's going on here? How can I more fully develop? From that stage, what Paul does is shifts to the future. Both of those were past things. He shifts to the future. He says, it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to those who are afflicted. Keep in mind this relief word. Along with us, this will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus. And so in the future, Paul says, so this is normal, right? If you're going through pain or somebody you love is going through pain, one of the thoughts that you feel, one of the things that wells up is, I just can't wait for this to end. Like if we can just make it through the treatment, if we can just make it through this season, if we can just make it through this hardship, then, then things will get better. And Paul answers that. He speaks to that. He doesn't tell us when it will end. He just says that it will end. Listen, it is encouraging for us to know this, that all of those who stand in opposition to God have an expiration date. There is a time when Jesus will return and when he does, game is over. He will settle the score and Jesus is king. He is king. So it may feel like, it really does feel like whoever it is that's against you, who's messing with you, messing with your day, that they could ruin your life. It feels like that, but in reality, if you walk with Jesus, they can't. They can't. They crucified him. And it didn't do anything but redeem our souls and glorify God. So they don't have that sort of power. Looking forward to the future hope that is in Jesus. But that future hope, him coming back, um, blessing those who are his people and um, 
afflicting those who have afflicted his people, judging those, is good news, but only to those who trust him. It says in verse 8, when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, he will then bless those who do. Hear me on this, friend, and this is the, the God's honest truth. That if you trust Jesus as your Savior, if you believe the gospel, what he calls in verse 5, the testimony. If you believe the testimony uh, of that we are broken, that we have fallen far from God, and that he redeems us, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then the return of Jesus is good news. That's really good news. I honestly can't think of any better news, right? He redeemed me, he saved me, and one day he's coming back and he's in charge, and all of this gets fixed. We're all put back We're all in good relationship. We all get fixed. Uh, That's really great news. But I am telling you this. If you don't trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that is really, really bad news for you. He will come to judge the living and the dead. Those who trust him are redeemed. Those who do not are judged. And so as long as you have breath, as long as you have thoughts, as long as you're alive, you have an opportunity to receive him. I pray that you do. This is the way the argument lines up. He says, you've been doing well, and that is to be commended. You're doing a great job. And also, in light of the reality that Jesus is returning, you don't really have anything to worry about. You just trust Jesus and keep going. It feels as though um, those who are being aggressive towards you can ruin things, but they cannot. And so in that moment, he, he shifts again. Not the past, not the future, but to the now. He offers up a prayer. Here's the prayer that he offers up in verse 11. In view of this, in view of your progress, the price that you paid, and the return of Christ, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work to uh, produce by faith. In other words, what he's saying is that um, we pray that God will continue to work in you and through you right now. Look, I don't want you to leave here with this idea that I'm talking about some sort of like um, behavior chart. You remember when you were a kid and there was a chart, had your name on it? Teacher wrote your name on it. And if you, you read your assignment, you got a star. And if you were there, you got another star. If you brought like a can for the canned food drive or something, you got another star and all that kind of stuff. That's not what Paul is saying. Because if Paul was saying that, that would be incredibly discouraging. Right? If we were all just supposed to stand here and go, look, man, I'm being afflicted. I'm being persecuted. They're after me. And I told you, hey, turn around and look at all the good stuff you did. For some of us, we'd be like, yeah, that's still not helping, you know, because I haven't done a lot of good stuff. For some of us, it'd be like, yeah, yeah, that'll work for a little while. You see, it's not about what you have accomplished. It's just that God is accomplishing in and through you. So, You don't have to stack up all your good things to make it through. You just have to know that he is working in you to do good things. It all rests on him. See, the paradigm that we often think about is twofold. One is, there is this world in which I am trying to do something for someone else. Like I'm trying to be a good employee, a good citizen, a good family person. There are the things, the efforts that I put into what I am doing. And we feel like that is balanced out or at least afflicted with other people trying to stop me. That's really the way that we see the world. I'm trying to do good. They're trying to stop me. If it weren't for my kids, I'd be a good parent. If it weren't for my wife, I'd be a great husband. If it weren't for my boss, I'd be a star employee. That's what, we, that's what you end up thinking, right? 
But we all know that without them, you ain't any of them, right? None of that works. So instead, that's not the paradigm. It's not about what you're trying to accomplish and what they're trying to stop you from doing. It's about this third realm, this underlying idea that God is at work in you. So when I approach my wife on some sort of situation, when her and I are at uh, a disagreement, this sort of thing, it's not that she's against me and I'm against her. It's that he is working in me and he is working in her. And so, yeah, I've got all sorts of shortcomings. I've, all, I've got all sorts of problems. I heard somebody say the other day, uh, it was sort of a joke, it was a husband and wife talking, and he said, uh, see, the problem is that you, what you're calling an argument, I'm calling a discussion about how you're wrong. You know, so that's how we approach these sort of things. That's how we approach these sort of things. Yeah, so that's not, that's what Paul is saying. He's offering up a prayer. You've done well in the past and the future is secured. So right now, let's just celebrate that God is working on you. And so what are the traditions? What are the traditional beliefs that Paul's wanting them to pass on that we are going to pass on? Well, there's a bunch of them, right? Christ is returning, all that sort of stuff. Well, here's a couple that I worked out for you. The first one is, for the Christian, hardship is not derailing, it is developmental. It's not derailing, it's developmental. Listen, it's the sandpaper, it's the good things. Hear me on this, and you may need to repeat this to yourselves. You may need to write this down so you can read it later. Just because things are hard does not mean you are a failure. You are not failing because it is hard. God does not hate you because there are hardships. That's just a part of life, y'all. That's just the way it is. You win them, you lose them, right? You got to know when to hold them, know when to fold them, that sort of stuff. I'm not condoning gambling. I am condoning country music, though. And so, you know, you've, it's just a part of life. And what we realize is that God is working in us in those moments. Okay, so this is super cheesy, but I thought it fit. Allow me a cheesy credit, right? Here we go. God changes caterpillars into butterflies, sand into pearls, and coal into diamonds by using time and pressure. He is working on you too. So cheesy, but it worked. Other tradition, don't focus on what they are doing to you. Focus on what God is doing in you. Don't give them that much credit, all right? Whoever they is, don't give them that much control. God is working in us. God is doing something in us, and that's what matters. Take your eyes off of them. You can't control them anyways. Stop worrying about what they subtweet. Stop worrying about what they say. Don't listen to what you heard that they said and start focusing and, and, and cement yourself down in what Jesus said. She may run her mouth, but what God says is final. He may think the world revolves around him, but Jesus is the only true king. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Uh, earlier this week, the boys were out playing basketball and I was milling around and, and uh, Amos started to tell me a story. He says, Dad, I was playing gaga ball today. Gaga ball, if you don't know, is a major sporting event um, in, our, in our elementary schools. They love this thing. And so he says, I was playing gaga ball today. And um, he says, my friend, he says the friend's name. He says, you just got humiliated. That's what Amos said. And as Amos said the word humiliated, his voice cracked. It really hurt him. And I was like, what did he say to you? He says, he said that I got humiliated. And it's also funny the way that Amos pronounced every one of those syllables. Humili and I said, what does that even mean? He says, well, I lost. 
And so, and I was like, isn't that guy that says that, isn't he like your best buddy? He said, yeah. I said, so your best buddy says that you are a loser. And, and Amos is like, yeah. And he, he's getting emotional, that sort of stuff. And I said, Amos, you told me earlier this week that y'all played two rounds of Gaga Ball and you won. One round, your whole grade there. And then y'all played the grade above you and you were the last kid in your grade to stay there, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, and, but you, you lost today, right? And he's like, yeah. And I said, listen, losing, struggling is not humiliating. It's just part of it. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But we know that you are good at Gaga Ball. We know that you are good at it because you have won in the past. And he's like, right. And I said, so what is true is reality. And what they say doesn't matter. And so as encouraging as I can be to you, and as uplifting as I can possibly be, as your friend, as your pastor, as some strange guy you've never seen before, I am telling you this. It doesn't matter what they say. It matters what he says. And that is true. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.